0: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, journalist Lauren Grush discusses her book, The Six, the untold story of America's first women astronauts. She details the history and experiences of the six women selected in 1978 to become America's first female
1: astronauts. She's interviewed by former NASA Deputy Administrator Lori Garver.
0: It is wonderful to be here today with Lauren Grush, a new author, of a recently released book called The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts. Lauren, uh, welcome. It's great to talk to you.
1: It's great to talk to you, too. I love our, our roles are, are reversed this time. Normally, I'm the one interviewing you. <laughs> That's
0: right. I uh, w- have been interviewed by you many times, so it will feel like I'm sure a wonderful conversation, but you're more comfortable asking the questions and I'm probably more (laughs) comfortable answering them. I'm I'm really interested in this discussion because I have been involved in in NASA as have you for a long time. I knew many of these original six women, all all but Judy. Um, And I just say right off, I have an advanced copy here of the book. I really enjoyed reading this book I have um, known some of the history but the way it's been presented I think people will find fascinating and I'm interested in getting some of the backstory and the highlights uh, teased out in this conversation so I'll start right off by just, just asking you and I could ask this a lot about a book I came out with last year um, what motivated you to write this book? The, the timing, the, um, what, what is it that you felt the message was right to now get out about, about these women today?
1: Yeah. So my my kind of go to answer is you know obviously uh, I've been reporting on space for gosh nearly a decade now and uh, it's you know the space reporting field it's still a pretty male dominated industry. Obviously, you know as I've continued in this this profession I've met a lot of great women journalists and they're 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 absolutely fantastic and I find myself really drawn to them and we kind of created this own little cohort within the space reporting world. So Sometimes And that's been really special to me, but it also kind of dictates, you know, uh, what stories I'm drawn to in space, you know, also spa- the space industry is still quite male dominated. And so it's always been very important t- to me to try and center women's voices in the space field as much as I can. And so that really kind of helped me look back, and you know, when I when I think about women in this industry, you know, I kind of was drawn to the women who came first, you know, who were the first female space reporters in this in this field, and then also who were the first women and uh, in the space industry, and that ultimately led me to this group of six women. And I think I was like most uh, probably most people in the public, you know, I had known Sally Ride obviously because she was the first American woman. space, but I really didn't have much of a sense of who the other five women were, and when I learned more about them and just how easily it could have gone to, say, Judy Resnick or Anna Fisher or any of the other uh, six women, I was, you know, very fascinated by their stories. And a lot of what ifs kept popping into my head of, of thinking, you know, oh, what if it had been, you know, somebody else? What if it hadn't been Sally? And how that would have changed the history books. And so, you know, it really was a way for me to learn more about them as it as it was to tell their story to everyone else.
0: Yeah, that is a fascinating part of the book that I do Uh, want to dig into because the selection of Sally to be first uh, is something you I think reveal some things that have not been talked about before. Some of your sources the uh, person who has done astronaut selections George Abbey as you describe him well in the book and I've known him well over the years it's always been shrouded in mystery Um, so even Every one of the six and how they are selected, you go into, and I and I, I want to uh, be able to let you tell some of those stories. For me, I think it's it's also interesting because right now, NASA has announced a woman is going to be the next uh, with uh, um, among the next crew that will be two people to. Go to the moon and walk on the moon, and uh, lots of people speculating about that selection. And I really think some of what you uncovered here uh, can can help reveal that. So I, I might we might dig into that if we have time. Yeah. Um, no.
1: Oh, so I was just going to say the the selection process was really the most fascinating for me because I think I had built it up in my head as it go- at being this one way, and then you know revealing it was was a whole different scenario. <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk about it. I, I I think the the group
0: of women as we get into each of them, we the, the very last to fly uh, of the six, uh, Shannon Lucid did, as you point out, end up being the astronaut of the 6 who stayed the longest at the agency who flew by far the most uh flights and hours doubling all the others combined it's really a situation of the you know the tortoise slow and steady wins the race because her yeah. first flight was after Sally's second flight and mm-hmm. if you think about the competitive environment of the astronauts i've as i said gotten to know many of them and shannon was never one of those people. She was a mother when she uh, was selected and had a lot of other things going on and didn't really play in the game of oh I want to be first and she had an amazing career. Um, So starting with Shannon Luce, I'd love to hear one of the vignettes. I think you interviewed her in, in person for your research what can you tell us about Shannon that you uncovered that will will be really um, a, a teaser for people who are going to read the book?
1: I think you you really nailed it when you you know some of the things you just said about her, um, Shannon. And Shannon, among the six of them, probably yearned the most to be an astronaut. You know, one of the things I loved learning about her was when the first Mercury 7 astronauts appeared on a magazine cover back in, you know, the 60s, uh, she... Immediately, you know, it clicked for her. She saw all white men on that cover and she thought, oh, I'm completely excluded from this cohort, even though it was something she desperately wanted to do. And she even mailed in a letter to the editor (laughs) to ask if they were going to let women into space someday. And she got a response from what she remembers saying, you know, maybe someday. (laughs) And then it ultimately turned out that she was going to, she was one of the six. But you're right, you know, while she had this burning passion to go to space, you know, she wasn't really caught up in the politics and the competition of being the first american woman but she definitely you know with all of the astronauts and and, and this went for the men as well in their class you know they all wanted to fly as soon as possible. That is what I've been told the aim of an astronaut is to go to space and so having to wait is a pretty agonizing process but you know it wasn't it wasn't important to her to to be you know this big name in the history books. It was really just that she she got to go and you know she everyone who talked about shannon all described her the same way it's just she was very cool calm and collected she knew exactly what she was doing and that was reflected in her work and she was also a a woman of of great integrity you know there's a big story in the book about how um, you know she was invited on this trip to saudi arabia and there were some restrictions for her to go by herself because she was a woman and, you know, she took a stand. And, and you know, there was a moment where they said that she would ha- could go if she went as an honorary man. And she said, absolutely not. I'm, I'm not going to do that. And I think that's a great, very indicative of Shannon's uh, scruples.
0: Truly. I had never heard that story. And it really, I think, showed of, of them all, she was also perhaps... The greatest feminist in her own way—that she wasn't going to go on that trip. Uh, I too was invited to Saudi Arabia as the deputy minister of NASA and didn't go be, because even by then uh, it was it was not something I felt uh, you know we should be supporting. And um, but she really stuck to that. I, I loved I love that you revealed that story. Um, next in the line, the fifth to be assigned was Doctor Ria Sudden, another fascinating person who I believe you interviewed personally for this um, married to another astronaut, ultimately mm-hmm. flew on three flights um, the only one to sort of take makeup I guess like her personality is very different than Shannon's but yet wow, how driven could you be that she kept her medical you you, you outline their schedule and um, I, I really feel like she as a Doctor, just, I I don't know how you can do astronaut training along with that.
1: That's that was one thing that um, really struck me about all of the women is just how extremely busy they were and how much they juggled. I mean, it wasn't just Ray. You know, others were doing postdoc work or you know research at the same time. I can barely keep you know my wits about me with my, the one job that I have. I could, can't imagine juggling you know such heady jobs all the time. But they really managed it with grace. And another thing about Ray is she was the first to give birth to the so-called Ashley which is a, a child born of two astronauts, and she really had her hands full with, you know, a newborn, uh, her her uh, doctor work, her medical work, and then also being assigned, you know, to her first space flight. Um, so that really inspired me about her and you know her flight is extremely interesting because you know that's what I loved about diving into these stories is learning each about the shuttle flights that they flew on I feel like you know we know about the shuttle flights but we don't really dive into what exactly they did when they were up there you know it kind of lost that momentum over time so it was really great to kind of go in and learn more about the satellites that they were deploying and the payloads that they had on board but Rays is very interesting because uh, it did not go according to plan and they really had to improvise this uh makeshift mission while they were in space and they did it with incredible ease and it was a lot of fun for them actually so that was a particularly fun flight to write about
0: yeah and i do remember that one because the syncom ha- didn't work after we deployed it and i don't want too much of a spoiler alert because you describe it well but uh struck by while she 's creating and, and having to uh, stitch together literally a tool in space to use in real time, uh, someone from NASA ca- called her a good seamstress and Sally Ride, who is on Capcom, uh, made the correction of a surgeon right. I, I just I, I love the that interplay. Um, and that
1: was a great example of the women kind of like looking out for each other. You know, they were an interesting team of folks. Like, I wouldn't call them the best of friends, but when they were needed in a pinch, you know, they they always had each other's backs, which I really liked.
0: Yeah, I think the interaction was probably unique to your book, really interesting. You you don't sugarcoat it and say, oh, they were all best friends. But in the moments of the story, it is clear I, I there wasn't backstabbing in the sense of, uh, other than a competition to be first, I'm sure. But yeah. um, your point, I want to pull on a bit about how much else they did. I Do you get a sense that that is same for the men, uh, the male astronauts? I, I really didn't know how much else these women were doing, and it does seem above and beyond what we typically see.
1: Mm-hmm. You mean the camaraderie between No, them I'm as well? I'm saying
0: for as you were noting how busy they were doing oh. so many things and research and so forth. I don't know if it's a sign of the times, but today I think the astronaut corps is a bit smaller and I don't most of them have PhDs before they come. You, mm-hmm. you know, they they aren't doing the multitasking I think that these women did.
1: I think some of them did. I mean, some there are other doctors and other researchers that continued their research, with which to, to me blows my mind because like you said, and the training alone was uh, already so intense. You know, they had to stay current in the T-38 jets uh, that had to get 15 hours of flight time each month, which is sound, doesn't sound like a lot, but it, it, it's quite a lot when you're also, you know, learning the ins and outs of the space shuttle, every component, every subsystem, that was something that they had to do. They were also taking science classes you know, and then they had their jobs, their technical assignments on top of that, which you know sometimes was flight software, was working with uh, pressure suits. You know, there was quite a lot to do within training alone. So the idea that they had time for anything else was was really mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and next was
0: Anna Fisher, and Anna Fisher gets, I believe, the first mother in space. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know that daughter, Kristen Fisher, yes. both ha- again uh... to parents as astronauts, Chris, Kristen as is a, is a space reporter in part of your your uh, female space reporters group, yeah. um, but she was the fourth to be assigned, which is interesting as we get into the selection for the first. She had the chance potentially to be the first, um, was, I think, uh, so probably the favorite of some, Uh, And she did get pregnant, and, and she knew that would take her out of circulation for a bit. But what else can you tell us about that you found out about?
1: Anna. Well, Anna just was very determined, and I I loved that about her. You know, she she very much committed. She was said, I'm going to space, and I knew that's what I was going to do, and nothing was going to detract me from that. And she knew that when she got assigned, especially after she had gotten pregnant, that, you know, there would be some criticism. And, and that part really struck me. I mean, obviously, I wasn't surprised. I knew, you know, with every single one of these women, there was going to be some kind of friction with the choices they, they made because, you know, the country wasn't as far along as enlightened it, as it needed to be by that point. Um, but hers is really, you know, one of those double standards where you're just kind of icked out by it um, because, you know, before she flew, there was all this commotion about how she was going to be the first mom and people were really not very happy about it. You know, there are a lot of questions about, you know, how could she leave her child behind, especially, which is just, you know kind of egregious to think about when she's on a crew with other men who also had children and none of them were asked, you know, how they felt about leaving their children behind. And even when she was in space, you know, a reporter asked how being an astronaut, uh, fit in with her duties as a mother. And she just had to be as graceful as possible. I mean, they all had to be as graceful as possible when they were asked questions like that. And she handled it really well. But one thing about Anna I thought was really, interesting was that, you know, she never really took a formal maternity leave. Uh, she was assigned to her flight right before she gave birth. And then she was back in the office the next day with her little uh, pillow seat. <laughs> and she really wanted to show, you know, how determined and dedicated she was to her flight. You know, I'm sure people have different opinions about, you know, whether or not that was, you know, something she should have done or should that she needed to do. Maybe that was like a infrastructure issue or the fact that she still had to go into the office, but ultimately that was her choice and she really wanted to prove that she was just as dedicated to her job as she was to being a mom. Yeah, that's
0: right. You could see maybe NASA getting some criticism today, but for then I was thinking as I was reading your overview of it that, well, good for NASA that they even assigned her Uh, as she was coming out of of having a baby and uh, yes, that's not how we would look at it today but you have to look at these things in the Times. Um, And and Anna, I guess you didn't interview, she had a contractual obligation. Is she writing a book?
1: So, you know, the women are very popular in terms of their stories, there are other, you know, other stories that they have been under contract for. So, um, but Anna was really great. You know, I, I attended lots of, um, Q and A's that she had done. And, uh, I even went to one of her ask an astronaut events at Kennedy space center. And that was a really, um, and also one of the things about these women is, you know, they've been telling their stories for years and years. And so they've been very open with, you know, what it was like for them and their feelings and their experiences. And so that it made, it made writing this book really quite easy and quite fun because there's, there's such a rich history to die from already.
0: Yes, which does make it surprising to me there hasn't been this book written previously because they are pretty open. Our next character is Kathy Sullivan, the third mm-hmm. female American astronaut to go to space. She's written several books and I know had uh, also a contractual reason to not be interviewed personally, but she's uh, talked about her experiences. She, I I probably know her her best of of the six. I think a lot of us do because she's had a long, illustrious career in uh, not only NASA management, but NOAA management as an oceanographer (laughs) and a geographer. uh, And she just really, as a geologist, also Mm -hmm. has um, focused on a lot more broad than just space travel, going to the trenches of the ocean and so forth. Right. Um, Hubble Space Telescope, two two missions play play large in her NASA astronaut career. Um, but interestingly, there is less written about her personal life, um, and I'm uh, this. I'll, I'll be interested in your Kathy story to share with us that that you uncovered, but recognizing. That couldn't have been easy.
1: Yeah, I think that might be by design, you know, some, and I think that's also what I learned from writing this book is that some of the women are very eager to talk about their personal lives. You know, for instance, Anna Fisher, her husband, Bill Fisher, you know, he was also in the astronaut corps, very big part of her story and her overall career at NASA. So, you know, for some it's, it's, you know, they're an open book for others, you know, not so much. And and that was the same with Sally too. I think it was an, it was only after that she passed, unfortunately, that, that we we learned what we did about her personal life. So I think it's just, you know, and it it goes to show that among women we're all we're not all the same we're all very different and we all like to share certain things and and not share others Um, but with Kathy uh, you know Kathy's story was really fantastic because it really got to dive into the world of spacewalks and you know all of the contention surrounding you know the first American woman to do a spacewalk and you know was she going to have a different time Uh, you know there was a there's a story in there about whether she needed to spend more time doing a pre breathe which is you know taking the time to to reach the right uh, pressure beforehand. Uh, and there was concern, you know, that because she was a woman, you know, she would have a different time and she had to fight back against that before she performed her spacewalk. And so, you know, that that one was really fun. And also, you know, when she flew, she flew with Sally. And so hers was the first flight with two women on board. And uh, I thought that was really interesting because, you know, she made a comment about how, and I think this was in one of her oral histories, you know, when they were selecting the first woman, you know, heaven forbid they select two of us to go for the first time it had to be just one but hers hers was ultimately the one where the first two women flew which i thought was neat
0: yeah that was the the pre-breathe story uh everyone's gonna have to read the book to get that one because that's (laughs) that's a really good one and i had not heard it and um i think kathy is pretty open uh about her some of some of the early shenanigans antics of of men when they flew, the famous how many tampons do you pack stories Yes are yeah, she's in, a very she's, big
1: figure in that <laughs> yes
0: um, but she she really um i I found later as a manager also she had. She had all that down and she knew what she was dealing with, which was really helpful for for her career. I I think, interestingly, she's also been open that she wasn't even at Sally's first flight. She's been the most open Mm -hmm. to say, you know, it was a little hard not to be selected as the first.
1: And I that for me is something that I can relate to. You know, obviously, I think at the time they probably all wanted to put on a very strong front and, you know, say, oh, it doesn't bother me to be the first or, you know, I, I just want to just want to fly. But I feel like, you know, if I were one of the first six, I think there would probably be a, a, a small desire, maybe not a small one to to be the one in the history books, you know. And so for her to be open about that and that it actually did bother her. I think is something that we could all relate to. And I'm really happy that she did, you know, make that known to people that, you know, you know, it it did hurt not to be to not be selected as the first. I agree. I agree. Uh,
0: Buzz Aldrin has has also done the same as being Mm -hmm. number two on the moon. Um, Well, the second woman selected for a NASA space mission was Judy Resnick. And hers is a tough story since we know she ultimately lost her life on her second flight and Challenger accident. Um, A very vivacious person, we all can remember her floating in space with her beautiful hair taking up Mm -hmm. half of the shuttle capsule, it seemed. Um, Lots of fun stories. What's What's your favorite, Judy?
1: I think learning about Judy was probably my favorite part of this book because it really did feel a bit like detective work, you know, having to piece together people's memories of hers uh, of her from you know the people that worked with her uh, what they remember of her and everyone has a very vivid memory of Judy and it was very much you know she she could take a lot of crap uh, but she would give it right back (laughs) and I really love that description of her because everybody kind of said it about her and I and I really like that she was obviously a very strong very bold personality and she was very committed to being taken seriously you know she was fiercely protective of her private life and also she did not want to make any kind of show about her gender. She also made history as the first Jewish American to fly into space and she also didn't want you know she didn't like labels she just wanted to be an astronaut you know and that was she didn't want to emphasize the other aspects of that. Not that she wasn't proud but you know it was just she wanted to be known for her job and her job alone and I thought that was really inspiring. Um, her flight is also fantastic. Um, you know, they had the first pad abort, which, you know, for me as a current space reporter, it was interesting to hear all the fuss around the pad abort because you know, at, to the, currently we have pad aborts all the time. It's when the rocket, you know, fails to ignite the engines uh, right away while it's um, on the, the launch pad. Uh, so those for me are pretty common. But back then, that was a very scary time for the shuttle program because they never had a pad abort ab- before, and that. Scene is really, uh, was really fun to write because it was a very vivid memory. It's one of those flashbulb moments for a lot of people. So those who were on board during that abort really remember it and they remember every kind of second as it ticked by. And so that was really really need to get to write. It was almost as if I was there. Um, and then when she did go into space, you mentioned her hair. You know, there there's really great moments that really showed how cognizant the women were that they were under this intense media scrutiny when they flew. Um, you know, Judy, Judy had a an incident with her hair. I won't go into full detail, but, you know, she had to swear her crewmates to secrecy about it, because you know she knew that if it, it got out, that would be the entire focus of her flight because she was just the second American woman to fly, and I think that 's just a good reminder that you know when you when you do fly as a first in an in a underrepresented group, you know you're there's much more eyes on you than you could ever possibly want, and you're representing a larger cohort cohort of people yeah, I think you pulled
0: that out really well in the book, all six. Uh, took that on in their own way um, And that was probably a thing that bonded them. They knew yeah, they knew they each had to be excellent and by all indications they were all excellent Um, just truly remarkable missions as you go into them and um, their success their role in them all all just it, it just made me smile to turn every page Uh, to go into now, Sally Ride, the first yes. person selected. I'm interested in in both your takeaways. First, before, as you say, we you ended up being able to talk to uh, her partner of 27 years, Tam uh, O'Shaughnessy, as well as her husband, Steve Hawley. And, um, but before we knew of her personal life, her selection, to me, the story of of George feeling, uh, I think, for a lot of the really substantive ways, she was great at using the remote manipulating arm that would play in this mission. Um, but but really, when he went up and pushed her as being the first to Chris craft, you say he yeah. said no. Uh, yes. So he had two others in mind. I'm presuming that's Judy and Anna. Tell us about that. Uh,
1: Yeah, so Chris is, I think since then, Chris has mentioned Sally was not his first choice. And that's, I think that is really what struck me about learning about this whole selection process was how it really came down to one guy's opinion. (laughs) I mean, he obviously had some help. You know, I talked about how he consulted with uh, Bob Crippen, who was the commander of that flight. But it really, George Abbey was the guy that, you got you to go into space, you know, and and he had this mythos about him. uh, But also there was mystery, you know, because he didn't he never told you where you stood. That was kind of the the criticism I heard was, you know, he he was a very um, opaque person. (laughs) Yeah, it seemed Uh, like
0: every time a woman was on you, you thought they were going to be asked. They weren't sure if they the call was to tell them
1: they were out. (laughs) Right, yeah. Or if they were in trouble or something. You know, no one quite knew what a call from George Abbey meant until you actually heard the words, you know, uh, we'd like to assign you to, you know, so-and-so flight. Um, But, yeah, no, George, you know, when I spoke to George, he really didn't, he thought it was interesting that um, people thought it was this big mystery because for him, it was, there really wasn't any kind of special sauce to it. You know, he really just tried to match... People with the best qualifications to the requirements of the flight, and so for sds seven, which was what Sally flew on, you know, was very uh, involved with the remote manipulator system or the robotic arm, and at the time she was really considered, you know, the best at the at the robotic arm, uh, you know. Uh, manipulating it. And so that was ultimately what, you know, the outward reason for why she was selected, but you know, there were other things about her too that did go into consideration at least from what Bob told me, you know, they they thought she would be able to handle it, you know, better than maybe some of the others. Just they didn't think that being the first was something that would go to her head, and that might have to do with the fact that, you know, she was very, she was a big compartmentalizer, and she, um, you know, she was also a bit of an introvert, so they, that might have also played into her favor. So it really wasn't, you know, while they say that it was, you know, the her work with the robotic arm, there were other things at play um, as well. They also referenced her, uh, her, pass as a tennis player and uh, you know how she was able to keep her cool on the tennis court so i think some of those things played into it as well but like i said i was really surprised by it because I think in my head and maybe in most people's heads you know we have this we've built up astronaut selection i thought maybe there was some special algorithm you know you put all these inputs into a computer and it pops out you know the perfect person for the job and really you know it's it. It can be just as sub- just as subjective as any other selection process out there.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, I think that comes out well, and I think the the phrase you said she would not. They felt seek the spotlight or fame, and mm-hmm. to me, that's that's really a fascinating thing when you look at other selections NASA's made for astronaut first, and yeah. certainly with Neil Armstrong, also an introvert. Uh, I I would guess. That played, and so maybe as we look to first people back on the moon here, uh, we ought to be thinking of that. Um, As I mentioned, at the time of her death in 2012, well, first we should say Sally flew twice uh, on NASA shuttle missions. She was scheduled for a third before Challenger, and after the Challenger accident, stayed to be involved. She was the only astronaut assigned to be involved in the. Challenger Accident Investigation. She played a pivotal role that, that you outlined well and then went on to author a report known as The Ride Report but mm-hmm. was really about the future of the space program, laid out a lot of what we ended up doing to this day. Fast forward, she continued to play this role as I worked with her later. I was um, just going to say, yeah. you
1: also, she, she became known for you know, helping out with the shuttle investigations. And then I know she also worked on a report after the Columbia disaster that uh, you worked on with her as well, right?
0: Yes, indeed. We were thrilled, of uh, joy of my life, to work, work with Sally over the years. And the most recent was on the future of human spaceflight that really put us on the course we're on. I have said the commercial crew program that you cover and that I've been involved in has... Um, really, we wouldn't have it, I feel, without Dr. Sally Ride. She is someone who I saw her come to the opinion during uh, the what is known as the Augustine Committee, but the Future of Human Space Flight Task Force in 2009. And she ultimately, with all her credibility, was able to say, it's time, and we can now transition our astronaut transportation to and from the space station to the private sector. Not part of the book, but you well lay out Sally's um, credibility and how she earned it and how important she's been, I think, not just to NASA, but to the nation. And then at her death to find out that she had a female partner. You interviewed Tam. Tell us uh, about that. I I don't know that really much has been... Talked about since the New York Times obituary, which stated very matter-of-factly that she'd had a partner of 27 years who was yeah. a woman.
1: No, Tam was fantastic to speak to, and she also has many old, you know, uh, tapes that Sally, uh, you, you know, Sally used to record everything. You know, she was very, she was very meticulous in taking notes and um, writing things down and recording things, and so Tam sh- shared some of those materials with me, and it really made the book all that more vivid and great um also i'd be remiss if i didn't you know shout out lynn scherr's book about sally ride you know tam is also featured heavily in there and um sally the sally ride biography is you know by lynn is you know really the definitive text about sally and and she does a great job with that um but one thing i really love talking to tam about was you know Obviously, they kept their relationship private um, while Sally was alive, but then, you know, Tam essentially came out uh, when Sally passed. And she told me, you know, she knew that she probably got some criticism about keeping that a secret, but a lot of people have messaged her since, you know, she came out and became public about it and told her that, you know, her saying that she was Sally's partner Uh, you know, gave them the confidence and courage to come out themselves and and be true to who they were, and so I thought that was really a fantastic thing to learn, and I think, you know, that's just it shows how much weight Sally had while she was in this world, and even when she's not, you know, she she still inspires people to this day. She absolutely does, and I agree. Lynn Shearer's book, uh,
0: The Biography of Sally, uh, really is... um, the penultimate work on her life, and she does go into more detail about these relationships and the timing. You cover it very well as, as well. And I, um, I'm, I'm struck by this question, which Lynn teases out a little bit. Uh, when did NASA know? Did people suspect? There's so much speculation. Did you pick yeah. up on any of this?
1: No, I really didn't. And, and, you know, just to be clear, she was Sally was also um, married, you know, to Steve Hawley uh, when she was, uh, you know, training to go to space and when she was in space. So, you know, and, and Tam and I have talked about this, too. You know, she probably, you know, was attracted to both men and women, you know. Uh, so maybe there wasn't, you know, there was no speculation happening at that time. I know there I did talk to one of Sally's friends who. Uh, mentioned that you know she had heard somebody, a reporter, was looking into Sally's uh, sexuality, and that that really bothered her when she heard about that. But it ultimately nothing came of it. Um, but I'm pretty sure, you know, I, I, obviously we can't talk to Sally now, but I'm sure there was a concern. For, for that to be to come out because that would be, you know, all anyone talked about was the fact that she had a past relationship with a woman before she came to the space program and, you know, uh, we you know there's a reference to Billie Jean King and how much scrutiny she was under when she became you know when she came out and obviously Billie Jean King was a role model for Sally um, as a fellow tennis player and so, you know. Um, it was probably just one more thing that she had to think about that she probably shouldn't have had to think about at the time. And it, it's indicative of the fact that, you know, when Sally flew, there was still quite a long ways to go in both, you know, how the country viewed women and how con- the country viewed, you know, gay people. And, you know, she really she really took on a very big burden when she when she stepped into that role.
0: Yeah, that is a great point that I think those of us who knew Sally... Felt when she died, of course, overwhelming grief. She wasn't even very open about her pancreatic cancer, although I had seen her fairly recently. It was obvious she was not well. But um, the head of NASA, Charlie Bolden, who'd known her a long time when she died, asked me, Did you know uh, that, that she was gay or, or bi? And I said, uh, No, but I. I, I wouldn't say it's that surprising. Of course, he knew Steve Holly, her husband. You know, no reason to have uh, it really be questioned, except that she was private. So the very mm-hmm. thing that she was selected for, almost, you know, uh, as we were talking about one of the discriminators, uh, also played into this. And it's interesting that for Sally, she didn't love in all the interviews and all the crazy questions that you outline, journalists asked her, she kept hoping for a day when the issue wasn't the fact that she was a woman. She certainly wouldn't have wanted to add to that uh, another aspect of her private life. So yeah. it's, it's, it's very uh, understandable. But there's um, a visit that you discuss in the book where George Abbey, who had selected her, seemed to think Sally was a little nervous, not herself, before her first flight and he brought in uh, one of Sally's guests to the launch mm-hmm. and she was a former girlfriend uh, mm-hmm. of rom- a romantic relationship of Sally's and allowed her to go to the beach house, breaking quarantine, to settle Sally down. Sally was married at the time. It wasn't astronaut Steve Hawley, her husband, who he brought in. It was Molly. Hard, hard to really imagine George didn't have a sense.
1: I mean, uh, I'll leave the speculation to to others. But you know, he the way from what he told me, he just knew that she was very close with Molly, and that uh, if anyone could make her feel more comfortable, he wanted to provide that for her. And so I thought that was very yeah. sweet. He must have had some sixth sense of, of some kind.
0: Yeah, knowing George as long as I have, he did that with with a lot of people, so it could be anything. Um, and broadening out now, we've got about 20 minutes to go, we have a more general discussion about women at NASA, specifically women astronauts at NASA. And you mentioned, I think in the close, in the epilogue, that in the years after the six left their mark on NASA and the world, the ranks of women in the astronaut corps continued to swell. Mm -hmm. Um, You say later, uh, maybe not as much as you should, um, they haven't really, wow, I'm just wondering how you chose that, that language, because uh, there were six astronaut females in this class. We've only one other time had more than six in a class. It's true. Uh, mostly for the next 20 years, there were only two or three.
1: To be fair, though, this was one of the larger classes that we've had, I think, in a very long time. I'm not sure when we've had other, uh, you know, 35 people enter uh, the astronaut corps. But you're right. And I I did try to make that clear at the end. You know, while we've had women in every single class since uh, the sixth arrived, you know, we're very, very far away from reaching parity of any kind. You know, one sixth of the people who've gone to space have been women. And so... You know, it's it's still quite a ways to go. And, and then in terms of the statistics for women of color, it's it's abysmal. You know, we we are still trying, you know, racing to catch up. And so I am inspired by NASA's Artemis program, um, which has the stated goal of sending the first woman and the first person of color to the moon. Obviously, I think there's, you know, there, there might be some debate as to whether or not, you know, that should be in NASA's goal for the program. But I think it's it's a great, you know, it's a great way to move forward. And the fact that they are putting these things top of mind is nice. But, you know, it's still, we have a lot of catching up to do.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think any of the six um, probably wouldn't love. I, I know Sally wouldn't have them particularly in advance saying it'd be a woman, again, she was yearning for a time when Mm -hmm. this would be behind us, then then we would have equity. And it is rather shocking that 45 years after the six were selected, there has been only one astronaut class that had gender equity. Um, That was under my watch. I'm proud to say it was only eight (laughs) people and we managed to get four. Of course it
1: was, Lori. (laughs) But uh, they haven't done it
0: since. and, And the The selection that was made, just as I was arriving in 2009, um, I think was three women uh, out of 12 or something. It's been, I've run the percentages, and we did have a class in 96, it was 44 Mm -hmm. uh, people, so well over the 35, and there were eight women. But that's a similar percentage to what we had 20 (laughs) years before. Uh, Just every photo every photo of every class, every moniker of every class, the eight balls, you know, I mean, they're, they're just all gender gendered terms, and I'm yeah. not sure why we can't get out of this. Um, I am interested, I, I think you get into a little, the 35 new guys is what the class of the six was known as. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about how they picked that and what's, what that <laughs> really stands for.
1: Well, yeah, it's really the TFNGs was their yes. their name for for publicly. It was the 35 new guys because there were 35 of them. And also, I think, uh, and I say this in the book as well. You know, that term is really indicative of what the women wanted to be. Uh, you know, at the time, they very much wanted to be just one of the guys. It was not in their nature to highlight themselves as women. They wanted to seamlessly fit in, and that. Uh, you know, that was seen in all of the choices that they made. You know, there's a great moment in the book where Anna and Sally snuck away to a department store to go buy khakis and polo shirts, which was, you know, the de facto uniform for engineers, which still is, by the way, at least uh, based on my parents <laughs> when they were working at NASA <laughs> um, but, yeah, that was, you know, that was kind of how it was for women, the, especially for the first women back in, you know, the 70s and the 80s. You know, you you really didn't want to highlight the fact that you were, you know, a woman or that you were a woman astronaut. You just wanted to be an astronaut. I think we've we've evolved a bit in terms of how we see, you know, how we present those things today. You know, obviously, we want to be treated equally. At least I know I do. And But also am happy to celebrate the fact that I'm a woman. So I think they had to kind of try and fit in as much as possible in order for us to kind of celebrate those differences moving forward. Um, But also the term TFNGs has a cheeky uh, second name, which is the effing new guys, which is a military term to refer to the fact that you know, they knew they were the newbies and that, you know, everyone ha- was looking at them with a side eye. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, do do tell us about your background. I, I hadn't noted that your parents worked at NASA. Uh, yes.
1: So what oh, did they well, do? Well, yeah. So but this, this is why I really loved writing about the shuttle program, was because uh, it's been near and dear to my heart so, for my entire life. Um, my parents worked their entire careers on the space shuttle program. My mother was the deputy orbiter chief engineer, and then my dad uh, helmed the propulsion branch at JSC uh, before they retired. And so, you know, I really grew up with the space shuttle program. Obviously, on the engineering side, it's very different. I, I learned this, you know, the engineering portion versus the operations is they're very separated so this was a, a chance for me to kind of dive into a part of the shuttle world that I really didn't know that well and also you know as a child uh, I say this all the time but you know I gravitated away from space a bit you know as a teenager uh, just because you know when your parents do something it's not necessarily always that cool uh, and I also didn't really you know study the shuttle as much as I could have it was kind of just one of those things where my parents would wake up at three in the the morning to go, you know, cover a launch and then come home, you know, at midnight or something crazy like that. So it was really neat to, to dive into each of these shuttle flights that the women were on. And like I said earlier, you know, learn more about the payloads and what the objectives were and, you know, how much they had to train and what kind of training entailed to to go to space. So it it really did kind of, it was a beautiful full circle moment for me um, as someone who grew up with this program but didn't really appreciate it at the time. And are your parents still working at NASA? No, they were happily retired uh, and living, enjoying their pensions. (laughs) And in there, especially for
0: your mom, having a career like that, and you note a little bit in the book about not just the astronauts and um, how much uh, we have, how far we've come since the beginning of having women in these fields. But why do you think 45 years later we're still not uh, there? Any either operational or um, the engineering community or the astronauts
1: well, I think when you put you know societal barriers in place, they just take a, a very long time to dismantle. I think a great example is you know the choices that were made in the early days of the program, you know for instance, spacesuit sizes you know. Uh, There was an effort to create the extra small upper torso, which is part of the spacesuit, um, so that it could accommodate, you know, smaller women. Well, it would predominantly be women, but smaller people in general. Uh, And that choice was not made, ultimately. And so, you know, years later, it takes so long to make those developments and to, to build those you know, that technology, that those choices that we make reverberate through time. And so, obviously, if you remember, uh, the first all-female spacewalk had to be rescheduled because of a problem with spacesuit sizing. Now, obviously, it didn't have to do with the fact that there was no extra small, but it just goes to show, show that those choices that we make they will they will have repercussions for years and even decades. And so I think maybe that can speak to why it's taken so long. It's just when it comes to space, you know, things take a really long time to develop. And so if you make choices that limit people early on in the days of the program, it's going to take a really long time to dismantle those. So that's why we need to to put these things first front and center is because then we won't have these issues play out decades later. Sure, I think that is, is
0: an important point and a piece of it, and you, you unearthed a great quote from a technician about the spacesuits who says, you know, we're not discriminating, this is just uh, economics, and I had to look into the spacesuit designs, and we've done this to ourselves more than once. So yeah, yeah it takes 10 to 20 years, it doesn't take 45, and we keep making the same mistakes frankly, I think men are making the decisions and we get the extra large suits and we don't get the smalls and there this has affected many women in the program mm-hmm. who I've known over time. Um, and we say they're unintended consequences and, and hopefully we are working through that. To me, I do feel that um, there's there is a bias when you look at, Doctors and lawyers, law schools, medical schools—over fifty percent female. But mm-hmm. engineering isn't one of those fields that is uh, trending in that in that direction, as, as as we've been talking about and continue to try to unearth the reasons. I, I know NASA's making attempts with. With Artemis, you look at the Dragon missions. Astronauts flying mm-hmm. now. The first mission had two white men. Uh, we had a lot of time to make that selection. We, in all of our flights, I think NASA just had the first flight that had the same number of women as men on it. But one of the women was from an international astronaut mm, yeah. uh, program. So, and and truthfully, we were flying a lot more back in your story with the six.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In 1985, flew nine missions, and those are of five to six people. So, today we're only flying twice a year with with NASA crews, rotations of four. Um, so there aren't as many opportunities.
1: There aren't. But I will say, and this is something I kind of touched on very briefly at the end of the book. You know. As more of these commercial companies online come online and uh, offer different ways to get into space, you know there are more opportunities to send a wider array of people going up. I don't know if those opportunities are necessarily being realized, but you know, look at um, Inspiration Four mission. You know that was a the first well, it wasn't the first all civilian or it was the first all yes. civilian mission um, that SpaceX flew uh, on a private vehicle. And, you know, that allowed for, you know, a a very different group of people to go. There are two women on that flight. And, you know, one of them was a professor. Another was uh, a, a childhood cancer survivor. And so, you know, hopefully with companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, you know, they're offering new ways to get into space that we've never had before. And so hopefully that means that, you know, we can offer rides to people who would never have gone to space otherwise. Obviously, there's still a bit of a barrier involved and that's, you know, your wallet. Um, But like with Inspiration 4 and, you know, one of the recent Virgin Galactic flights, you know, there are charity raffles, there are, you know, uh, nice benefactors who will pay your way for you. You know, it's just finding that right opportunity. And so hopefully we just continue to move in that direction as more companies you know, come online. Now, I will say, obviously, with companies in any industry, it's, you know, we're still dealing with the same issues of any tech industry, you know, in terms of uh, bias, uh, representation, and sexual harassment. So, you know, while they may offer these new opportunities, we also have to, you know, continue to look behind the scenes and make sure that we're, you know, operating with everyone in mind and being as inclusive as possible.
0: Yeah, it's a very unique time uh, for people to be flying in space. Whether you're willing to call them astronauts or not, I, I tend to. <laughs> I won't to. get into
1: that debate. <laughs> yes, uh, but
0: the benefactors, as you stated, have have just I feel done a fantastic job. As the mission you mentioned, Inspiration Four, and Jared Isaacman, that was the first uh, space crew that that was fifty percent female, but. The um, In general, the millionaires who are able to buy seats from the billionaires have all been men. And Mm -hmm. it is due to, um, I I think as you say, some of these uh, benefactors have chosen to give away seats to a broader range of individuals. That will trail off over time, I'm sure, and most Mm -hmm. of the seats will go to not only the people are willing to pay, but the ones really interested. And there is an element to this that is uh, poll after poll shows that more men are interested in going to space than women. Of course, that still means there's plenty of women willing to go. Um, mm-hmm. But there is something about it uh, that that is, that is different. And um, I think these six really, um, what I liked about them, and I don't know if it was part of the selection, but they did have a big range within them of their of their reasons and their interests as as you yeah. really really point out um, i I am though interested since I think as a government program, the NASA astronauts, that's where we can make the greatest impact um, there there was not a hint in the book, so I'm wondering if you ever uncovered it, it, it of of the women being in any way less Capable or, or qualified, and when they were on their flights, um, uh, whether their uh, ability to do their job was in any way wanting?
1: You know, uh, not that I really uncovered. I think, you know they definitely talked about their struggles you know some of them obviously struggled in certain areas of training before they flew but they were really so determined to be as best as they could be that you know i didn't really uncover anything from them that you know doubted their selection or that they were worthy of the job in any way
0: yeah it really comes out in fact that they all made incredible contributions on, on orbit in their missions. Um, I, I think probably that's the case with any astronaut you write about, that NASA's been focused on that f- for all the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we wrap up, we've just got a couple minutes left. As we talk about Beyond the Six uh, and NASA's ability to incorporate women in a lot of these decisions being made by men, in many ways that is still happening, although we recently had a woman who is head of the human spaceflight program. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she left to go to SpaceX. Um, we haven't yet had a female NASA administrator. I'm one of four female deputy administrators we've had. Um, so still just wondering for, and you talk about this a little in the end of the book, um What's ahead? I know we've talked about Artemis, but mm-hmm. do you see there's a um, that that change will continue?
1: Well, like I said, you know, I think it might be um, a little controversial for some, the fact that Artemis the Artemis program has the stated goal of sending the first woman, the first person of color to the moon. But I do think that that is a tactic that gets results, you know. um, I think it's, just look at the selection committee that picked the first six women, you know. They had diversity inclusion top of mind when they went to go select this class, and so that dictated you know how they advertised for the program. You know they hired Nichelle Nichols from Star Trek to come do a you know a PSA to reach out to folks. Um, it dictated you know what universities they went to, what groups, what clubs they spoke with, and because they had that at top of mind you know, that really ultimately led to their success in finding women and people of color to come into the program. And so I think, you know, that's a good lesson for why it's important to have these things, you know, top of mind when you go out and you make those selections, because it ultimately leads you to find, you know, making decisions that make that goal successful. Um, So, you know, it can be up for debate on whether or not, You know, it it should be part of the Artemis program to have those stated goals. But I just ultimately think that it will lead to success. So maybe that's something maybe that's a lesson that NASA can take with it as it moves forward is, you know, when you put these things top of mind, you will find the right people for the job. Well, I think that that's a great
0: message and a great wrap up for this book review the six the untold story of america's first women astronauts uh lauren grush it's it's a beautiful story and i really appreciate you telling it and talking to me about it today thank you so much
1: laurie it was a pleasure
0: thanks for listening to this week's afterwards podcast if you enjoyed this podcast listen to c-span's podcast about books Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.